Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was calling around uh, asking places to tell my story, and I actually talked to you, Kaylee, mm-hmm. and you told me that uh, you only take pride patients or people who have been to pride treatment. And I just said that uh, I had gotten sober before pride was even founded. And you said, okay, well, sorry about that. Um, and then I got a call back from you about an hour later saying you talked to the director and you would love to have me come and speak at pride. So that's how I found myself at Pride's door. Um, I've also spoken at Pride a couple of times. Yes, and we love having you as a speaker. I'm so glad we were able to to get you in. Um, How did you get sober the first time then? What was it that led you to uh, treatment? Yeah, I got sober when I was 18. And I know that seems like a young age, and it is actually a young age. But um, I had clearly hit my bottom. Uh, I had two suicide attempts. I was a blackout drinker. I got in a lot of trouble. Um, I was in psychiatric units. So uh, by the time I turned 18, I turned 18 in November and got sober in January because I knew if I didn't get sober, actually, I probably would have just killed myself in a blackout or ended up doing something where I would end up in jail or a psychiatric unit. And uh, Kathy Joe, I wonder... Um what was your, um, what was the year of your sobriety and what was the time period like? January 4th, 1980. And I had just turned 18. And as far as like, um, time period goes, cause more specifically, I think, you know, obviously nowadays, and we talk about this, I feel like pretty often, um, there's just such limited activities and spaces for LGBTQ and queer people. Um, so what was that like in the eighties then? even know at that point that you were a part of the community? Well, that's a great question. I came from a fairly small town, River Falls, Wisconsin. It had a university, but um, I started having feelings at a very young age. And of course, I told myself, there's something wrong with me. Besides being an alcoholic, I used to write in my little diary, I'm an alcoholic and something's wrong with me. And I knew exactly what I was saying, but I couldn't put words to it. I would have crushes on girls in high school but I would go out with guys thinking, well, this is just a phase, you know, similar to what a lot of people feel, maybe less now. Um, but that was a big part of sobering up because being a blackout drinker, I was completely terrified when I'd wake up the next morning and go review the night and, bit, you know, remember bits and pieces. And then I'd remember, oh, I was with the girl that I had a crush on. I hope mm. I didn't make a move on her. And it just was so scary for me. Um, the treatment that I went to, it was it was a straight treatment center. I don't know what, what else to call it. Um, but they, even though I was 18, I think I had the L on the forehead and they could kind of see <laughs> that, you know, this young little whippersnapper here might have some concerns about her sexuality or actually be a lesbian. And they asked me directly about that <laughs> and, and if I had ever had any relationships with women. And I said, no. And that was a true statement because I hadn't even Mm -hmm. though I had a crush on the girl that was sleeping next to me in the twin bed. So, yeah, but the longer I stayed sober, the, the more I knew that I couldn't stay sober and lie to myself about who I was. 
And when did you, so you got sober at 18. So obviously you started drinking and using very young. When was like the first, I guess, when was your first drink? And then when did it really start to take off? I think my first, well, I remember as a kid, we lived in a neighborhood, a small neighborhood. And I remember it maybe, and it's so sad, like eight or nine years old, telling everybody to go get beers out of their refrigerator because we were going to get drunk like the big people. And I landed in jail. I was 12 years old. I was not arrested, but I was taken in the police station for public drinking. And they just called my mom. They they didn't know what to do with this little kid who was publicly drinking. Um, And there were just a lot of repercussions for my drinking at a very young age. And like I said, I was a blackout drinker almost from the very beginning. Um, I specifically drank not to feel. So I knew when I started drinking, I wanted the drink. Of, I wanted the feeling of the third drink when I started to drink. But then by the time the third drink came, I was, um, I'd have just a moment of feeling good. And then I would just go right into continue drinking and right into the blackouts and waking up places where I had to piece together what I had done the night before. So when you say you drink not to feel, I think that's extremely common. And I think that when we look at, you know, substance use, I think, or medical dependency issues, people are always like, oh, it's a problem. It's a problem. But I think a lot of times people use these things to help medicate themselves. And even though it's obviously not constructive or, you know, beneficial long-term, there's a reason people drink to forget or people drink to, you know, loosen up a little bit. Um, I wonder if you would be comfortable sharing uh, what I guess you were trying to avoid or what you weren't trying to feel. Or if you don't know, that's fine too. But I just think that that's a really common problem. Yeah, I I grew up in a family where my mom and dad were alcoholics. My sister was gone a lot. That's how she handled the dysfunction that was going on in the family. And it kind of left me there alone to deal with my parents. And my parents uh, actually fought a lot physically. And so I found myself as a really young person trying to stay home to have them make up and not fight like they were fighting. And even when I was outside playing and with the other kids, I'd always be close to home. So if there was any screaming coming from my household, I could run home and try to quiet them down. Um, so I think it was just a gene that I was born with. And I, I found it at a very young age and just went with it. And then I guess as far as when you went to treatment, you had mentioned you went went to one that was just, you know, not culturally specific, just open to the general population. Um, Was it an adolescent treatment center, I'm assuming? No, it was not. When I was 16, I had come home drunk uh, one day after playing softball. And these were in the days where you had the sunken living room and the orange shade carpeting. So I took my shoes off and all I had to do was get from the kitchen to my bedroom. And I had a blackout and I woke up and my mom was taking her glasses off, looking in my face and my dad smacked me and hit me across the face. And I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and they asked if I wanted some help. And I said, well, maybe. So we went to the treatment center that I eventually went to at 18. And it was at that point, an adolescent treatment center (laughs) and they wanted to keep me there. They thought I qualified, even though I lied about everything I was doing. Um, The counselor said, well, I think this would be a good place for you. Well, it was a two month program. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to give up softball for two months. So 
um, I decided not to go. But I have to say that that was a very important seed that was planted for me, that there was a place I could go and get help. And I remembered that place. And that's exactly where I went to two years later. And then it was a 28 day program for adults. I'm curious, will you speak a little bit to your experience within that program that you went to? Um, you know, were you able to to get sober, stay sober after that program? Um, or were there, you know, multiple trips back and forth to a treatment center? Yes, I'm, I am very fortunate and probably near the 10% that went to treatment and have remained sober since January 4th, 1980. Congrats. Yeah, and I'm I'm very proud of that. But there's a lot of work I do, um, you know, uh, to be where I'm at. I am very grateful, but I do the work that needs to be done to maintain my sobriety. Service work is huge in in my life right now, and um, it's a long journey. Yeah. Uh, so you, it's I probably been sober more than the two of you are of age. <laughs> so. <laughs> So have you always lived then in the Midwest area? Because you obviously grew up in River Falls. And then when did you move to the Twin Cities? Um, I think around 1982, uh, when I got sober, I went to a halfway house and back to River Falls, Wisconsin, Hmm. and met my first girlfriend, which is a very dysfunctional four-year relationship. I know they say, you know, don't get involved with anyone. And I'm a testament to that is very true. I mean, I, I just had so much going on and... I was still trying to figure things out and, but then I met this girl and, you know, things just kind of took off in that direction, but we both, and I did go to the university of river falls for a while, but then we both moved to the cities because I think there was just a lot more support here uh, culturally and for lesbians and gays. Mm -hmm. And so then had you, did you hear about Pride Institute? Did you know what it was in 1986? Was that like a common thing or was it a very underground, like kind of secret hush hush type thing? I don't think it was hush hush. I think I heard about it, but didn't really, I wasn't, I wasn't using Pride as a place to get sober. So I didn't really put a lot of thought into it. I had Pride because I had a couple sponsors go through Pride. So I did come out and visit and knew about the Pride Institute. Uh, I knew it was very gay friendly or GLBT friendly, um, but I never really thought about it. I just thought it was a great program that they were now offering to, you know, people that are either exploring their sexuality or know that they're GLBTQ plus. Right. And, you know, I, I, it's always interesting talking to people who were around when it first opened because it's just shifted and changed so much as, you know, we've progressed in the LGBTQ rights realm. Um, Cause initially when Pride was opened, I mean, it was right in the heyday of the HIV AIDS crisis. That's why we opened in the first place. And so comparing it to what we are now to then is, is pretty remarkable. Yes. And back in, well, it must've been 1982. Uh, I went to San Francisco. They had the very first gay games back then. Mm-hmm. And I went and I played softball and, uh, uh, I know the man that we stayed with, um, he was such a great man, but he just took in whoever came on the list to stay there from out of state or out of the country. People were just offering their homes. And when I look back, I'm sure he had um, AIDS, probably full-blown AIDS, but nobody had a word for it back in 1980. They do. The people were getting sick and dying. You know, he had the facial pox and I mean, he was just, 
he, but he was a delightful man. And then I, when I went back in 1986, he was no longer with us. So, mm. um, but he has a special place in my heart. Yeah. You had mentioned you have, or you credit uh, staying sober to um, doing the work. I wonder if you can expand on what the work is and what that means. So for me, you know, it's, I always joke that my parents paid probably $1,800 for the same message that they're paying 30 to 40 to 50,000 these days, you know, don't drink, go to AA, get a sponsor. And that's really, that's the minimum, the basics to do it. But um, there's all kinds of service work. I recently became a GSR, a general service representative for my AA group. And with that, we, we do monthly meetups. I'm in district 18, which is considered kind of a rebel rouser district. I like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's given me an opportunity to like at pride, pride weekend, uh, just to do some service work at the AA tent or the state fair doing some service work there and just, introducing myself and letting people come up and look at the pamphlets. And um, so I'm really getting involved in ways that I didn't see or wasn't looking for before this last year, but I've always, uh, well, I, I haven't always had a sponsor because the tricky part is when with this long-term sobriety, I have a lot of people unfortunately are intimidated by that. But when I asked me to be my sponsors, because I'm, looking for something that they have that I would like, even at, even at this age of sobriety. Um, but I, I recently got a sponsor and we're working out very well together. Um, and she's not gay. She's married and 10 years older than I, but we have her on the same sobriety. And so, but she has some things that I would like to acquire my sobriety that I don't have. And so, um, but yeah, as far as service work, just, really saying yes and raising my hand. There was something about turning 40 years sobriety. I just had this really loud message, but it was a gentle voice that said, you've got to come out. You've got to start stepping out and telling your story, Kathy Joe, because I'm always pretty quiet about my date. Not that I'm ashamed of it or anything. It just, you know, there are people like, oh, I've been sober however long and you're, you know, mm -hmm. kind of an eye roll. And, um, but something told me that I need to start telling my date and telling my story. And that's how I got in contact with pride and other mm -hmm. places. So. Yeah. And we're so glad you did. Um, uh, being an honorary alumni of pride uh, just means that, yeah, you're involved with us. Um, you're part of our community and we are willing to take in anyone um, that, you know, fits, fits those boxes, checks those boxes. Um, so thanks again for being willing to do that. Um, I am curious, um, what do you really look for in a sponsor? You mentioned like things that you don't have um, when you're trying to find a sponsor. I think that's a difficult thing for a lot of people to kind of grasp at, you know, who am I really looking for? Um, will you just expand on what you look for um, personally? Yes, uh, that's a great question. Um, and I just want to touch on a little bit earlier. I was, uh, the retreat had four women talking about uh, sponsorship and they were in Al-Anon and AA and a couple others. Anyway, I hopped on and I was listening to that. And the one woman said, well, we always recommend that men go with men and women go with women. Of course I had to, I couldn't type fast enough in the chat to say, excuse me, the LGBTQ community would like to say something. <laughs> And so they let me speak and I just said, um, you know, that's really different in the LGBTQ community. So um, 
what I look for, I've had men sponsors, I've had women sponsors. It really just, it's really where I'm at in life. And like right now I'm searching more of a, a spiritual depth. So I know the steps, I've done the steps, I do the steps. So it's not necessarily about doing the steps for me at this point. It's about digging deeper on a spiritual level. And that's different for every person. If you're new in the program and you're just trying to get introduced to the steps, um, I have a couple of recommendations. One is do not get someone that you are attracted to, that you think is going to take care of you. Or, you know, there, there's so many mistakes and you hear them over and over. Um with people picking a sponsor and then it just getting into bad boundaries and sexual tension and that sort of thing. So it's, I would almost recommend that you, that you seek out someone with the opposite sex, you know, if you're just coming out and figuring stuff out for yourself. And as far as the bisexual group, and then, um, you know, really just take a look at what you want and, and really make sure that it's someone that you're not attracted to or won't ever be like they're, in a committed relationship or something like that. But, you know, that's what people have to learn along the way. And I've, I've unfortunately heard stories about how people get taken advantage of or they mm. take advantage of someone. But so it's really important just to just to see where you're at. And your sponsor can help you with that. I mean, they'll do kind of a conversation with you. Right now I have a, a, spon a sponsee in Colorado. She's married and you know, she had a slip and her sponsor told her that she needed to get another sponsor <laughs> to do the first three steps. And I had her do the fourth and fifth. And now we're doing the first three steps. But um, and then I have a woman who is you know, she's heterosexual, too. She's 74. And we, we do a daily reading every day, a codependent reading. So for me, when I sponsor people, it's not like, OK, we're going to go through one through 12. I really find out who they are and what I what I sense that they need at that point. So trying to meet them on their level. And new in sobriety, sometimes it's just the basics. You know, it's like, oh, I need to go through the steps. I need to understand the program better of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the other thing I want to talk about that I'm very passionate is that, you know, somehow there's this thinking out there that if you take medications, you're weak or you're not doing the you're not doing the steps good enough because if you were you wouldn't need any medications you wouldn't need a therapist and that is just such hogwash I can't even speak enough about mm -hmm. that many 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 of us need medications uh, it's just like if you're if you're a diabetic and you need insulin you wouldn't will yourself not to take that you know it's just it's just ridiculous so thank goodness we have a lot of systems set up now to help people to meet them where they're at with their mental health issues and then in sobriety. You know, I take medication, so I, and I'm not, I am no longer ashamed of it. I think I was for a while and I got over it pretty quickly because I realized I can't live my full potential life if I'm, you know, only 70% there. Right. And that's actually a huge, like hot topic debate and historically has been within the treatment realm of like Suboxone and, you know, are you a true, are you truly in recovery if you're still taking medications? And it's so different or even just like stigma around like some people get sober from crystal meth, but then they drink alcohol and then they're like, well, you're not actually sober from your, you know, whatever. And I think people are coming around to the idea of alternative ways of thinking. I think there's a little bit less judgment as there has been before, but that's a real issue that we see all the time. 
thank you for being willing to share. I think a lot of people are in your shoes. Um, I know people personally that are in your shoes um, or were in your shoes about, you know, being ashamed of taking medication. So thank you for being willing to share that uh, part mm-hmm. of you. Well, Kathy Joe, thank you so much for being here with us today. We uh, we love having uh, you around. You are you are an active participant in our alumni kickball games. So thank you so much for showing up for us and and being a uh, uh, listening to our clients. So thank you so much. Thank you, Luke and Haley. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.